0: As you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we, the Crossing Church, desire for all people to enjoy Jesus by following him and being transformed by his gospel. And uh, because we're chasing after that, there's a lot that goes into uh, seeing that happen with intentionality. There's a lot involved. Like sometimes it's simply proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And exhorting people to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Like realizing who Jesus is. The the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Who entered into a city on this day that we celebrate about 2,000 years ago. Not to the, the, the praise and adulation of all the people he had created. But to the scorn and rebuke and ridicule. To eventually end up on a cross to die for our sins and rise from the dead, proving that everything he said and did was true and to see your sinfulness and to see that there's hope for you because Jesus has come to save you. He's died for your sins too. So part of seeing this vision happen in the Crossing Church is just simply proclaiming that truth and calling people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Um, Sometimes it involves wrapping your arms around a brother and sister in Christ who's going through just a mess and you're holding them up. As they're facing and walking through hard things. And you're encouraging them as they, as they deal with a situation that, that can't change. It's just hard. Sometimes it involves challenging an unsure or timid believer to step out of the boat and walk on the water. You know, turn, turn your fears into faith by trusting in Jesus. Not looking at what you can't do as much as looking at what He can do. If you would simply obey Him on a day-by-day basis. Sometimes seeing this happen... Involves hard conversations about sin, the life of someone you love, that they either don't see or they won't see. And you plead with them for the sake of their eternal soul, for the sake of the health of the church, to turn from sin and trust Jesus. Like when you understand this life God's created us for, and this ongoing attack of our sinful flesh and our enemy, waging war against us, experiencing the fullness of this life, you realize that we're not going to get to that end point, joy in Christ without a battle. It's not just going to happen accidentally. It's going to require war. War against our flesh. War against our enemy. There is a place for encouragement, and there is a place for hard words. You see a little bit of all of that in this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Paul to the church of Corinth. And it begins with some very hard words that open chapter 3. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you chose to enter that city on this day 2,000 years ago to allow yourself to be examined, to allow yourself to be found sinless and spotless, and yet to receive the punishment of a criminal so that you could save us, so that you could glorify your Father. We thank you that your power to save is still available. Your power to bring life is still available. We pray that that would happen today through this passage, through the work of your spirit, for the glory of Christ alone. Amen. All right, moving into chapter 3, Paul has begun this letter to this church he knows very, very well, a church he was personally involved in planting, Uh, knew these people very well. And the key problem he addresses in these first four chapters is unity. Now, unity is going to come up again and again throughout the the letter of Corinthians as we walk through this the rest of this year. But it seems to be one of the key ways the sins of this church were manifested by causing disunity. Now, the primary way it was manifested in these first four chapters was factionalism. The church was split into really two primary factions, we think, maybe as many as four, all centered around a certain group preferring one particular leader over another. Mainly Paul and Apollos. There may may have been a Peter group, uh, maybe even a super spiritual Jesus group, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 12. Paul first seeks to crush this factionalism by focusing their attention on the gospel as the ultimate manifestation of God's wisdom and power. Like one reason that we don't have to be divided is because of this common bond that we share in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, God's wisdom and power through the gospel is greater than the wisdom and power of humanity. The Corinthian culture valued this power and and wisdom of of humanity, the pride, the arrogance, the, the speaking ability, making much of yourself, impressing others so they would become your fans. They were all characteristics of public speakers and public leaders in Corinth, the city, from which these people were saved out of that pagan culture. And it was expected that they would evaluate their church leaders in the same way. And Paul just crushes that. He tells them, I intentionally refuse to be like that because I didn't want you to put your faith in me, the great speaker, the, the wise counselor, and not God. So that you would see in a humbled, crucified Savior a message of salvation that cannot be gained through your power and wisdom, but can only be gained through the wisdom and power of God, through your humility, through your brokenness, through you admitting, I bring nothing to the table. Kendrick walked us through the rest of chapter 2 last week, helping us see several things, but namely in light of chapter 3, that this wisdom of God shown in the gospel cannot be understood by the natural man, but only by the spiritual man. Now, not spiritual man in the sense that you have some kind of special uh, spiritual power or uh, spiritual abilities or sensitivities. You know, God's just speaking to you all the time, telling you what toothpaste to buy and, and where to park your car and what to buy somebody for their, their wedding present. Not, not like this weird super spirituality that we see sometimes people experiencing, but, but simply the spiritual man is one who lives in accordance with God's saving work through Jesus Christ. You, you're, you have the Holy Spirit in dwelling inside of you, therefore you are a spiritual man and not just a natural man. And this is a, a continuation of this twofold division of humanity going back to chapter 1 verse 18, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. The natural man are those who are perishing. The spiritual man are those with the mind of Christ, those who are being saved. And now Paul turns his attention to them more directly. And you know it's going to be a hard word from Paul when chapter 3 begins because he begins with this term of family. You know He wants to remind them of the shared relationship we have through Jesus Christ. Hey, brother, hey, sister, this is about to be hard. Get ready. And he says in verse 1, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? We see here that disunity and factionalism is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Now, Paul is not saying they're not Christians, let's just take that off the table. Um, He calls them brother. Sister is implied. He's affirmed at the beginning of the letter the reality of their salvation. Chapter 1, verse 2, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Uh, Verse 4, the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's already affirmed you are truly the church. You have the Spirit of God, a relationship with Jesus Christ abiding in you. Paul is saying it's not that you're not a Christian, but you aren't grown up. You're still immature. And therefore I have to continue to give you milk and not solid food because you're still the spiritual baby. Christians? yes. Mature? No. So what exactly is this milk and solid food Paul's referring to, spiritually speaking? Well, you see a very similar wording in, in uh, Hebrews chapter five, verse 11 through 14 Milk is the basic message of the gospel. The call of the missionary, the evangelist, come alive in Christ. Solid food from both passages is spoken of in the context of right behavior, living out the implications of the gospel, the reality of the gospel in your life. Not deeper spiritual knowledge. Solid food is for the mature, those, it says in Hebrews 5, with the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do we know they were immature in 1 Corinthians 3? Because of the presence of sin, of disunity, of factionalism, of jealousies, and strife. You see, the Corinthians didn't have a knowledge problem. He told them back in chapter 1, verse 5, that they were enriched with all speech and all knowledge. It wasn't a knowledge problem. Their immaturity wasn't because they needed deeper, more complicated spiritual truths to try and wrap their intellectual minds around. They had a heart problem. Because they weren't allowing the basic gospel message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified to saturate all of their life and transform all of their behaviors. We sometimes think spiritual maturity is equal to what we know. The more we know, the more mature we are. Or equal to what we can articulate, the more we can pontificate about or have these gospel-centered conversations, the more mature we are. Or maybe even equal to the religious works that we do. The more times we show up on Sundays or show up serving in the city or show up in our MCs or our DNA groups, the more mature we are. But here, and in passages like Galatians 5, where Paul lays out the difference between fruits of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit, Paul ties spiritual maturity to attitudes, to spiritual fruit. Like if we want to grow spiritually, when we come before the Word of God, our hearts have to be as engaged as our minds. If this time for you is just this mental exercise, let me see what I can learn, or let me see a new way of thinking about something, or or let me have my beliefs and my truths validated by this guy, and our hearts are not laid open before the Lord. Search me. Examine me, Spirit of God, Word of God. Show me where I'm not believing the gospel. Show me where I'm not allowing the reality of the gospel to penetrate this part of my life. Show me where I'm holding on to sins and, and insecurities and defensiveness and, and bitterness against people. Just lay me open, God. Don't let me leave here still engaging willingly and unrepentantly in sin. Search me and know me. If we're not living that out, doing that, We are in danger of doing the same thing the Corinthians were doing, having all this speech and knowledge but no gospel transformation, and thus we can still be spiritually infants in Christ. For the Corinthians, their factionalism, jealousies, and strife revealed they were spiritually immature, and they were living like just mere humans. Mere people of the flesh. They had, as though they had not come alive spiritually. They had the Spirit of God in them, but the way they were living made it seem as though they didn't. You couldn't tell a difference between the way they were living life as compared to a person who had the Spirit of God or who did not have the Spirit of God. Like, understand, there's nothing wrong with being spiritually immature unless you've had time to grow up. He says in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not solid food because you were not yet ready. And still now you are not ready. It was okay for me to feed you like that at the beginning when I first showed up. It's not okay that I still had to feed you the same way. No one gets angry with a baby because they act like a baby. Selfish, crying all the time, can't do anything for themselves, demanding. We don't look at Noah when he's crying, you know, Needs a diaper change. Change your own diaper, kid. Why are you crying to me about that? Right? Babies are babies, and we treat them and love them and and serve them because they don't know anything better. But it's not okay to be 21 and act the same way. That would be strange. We would be talking about help. Lots of help. Paul is saying you should no longer be immature, but you are, and that's the problem. You should have grown up by now. And sometimes we see the same thing in ourselves. Maybe our our struggle toward maturity isn't in the area of jealousy and strife, or maybe it is. Maybe it's another area of our life where our actions and attitudes do not reveal that we have the Spirit of God alive in us. The way we are, in fact, living could be experienced by anybody. Anybody can live like that. You don't need Jesus to live like that. It doesn't seem to make any difference in this part of our life to say that we have Jesus alive in us. It's like a billionaire living under a bridge. It doesn't make any sense. This is actually a a huge problem uh, in the church of the Bible Belt South. After decades of the gospel being proclaimed separate from discipleship, so it's just about going to heaven when you die. Do you know that you know that you know that you know that when you die, you will enter into eternity with Jesus? And, and, And the reality is, I need to die now. I need to die tomorrow. I need to die all day, every day to follow Jesus and to believe his gospel. Uh, along with maybe the gospel not being preached at all, coupled with the loss of regenerate church membership, trying to ensure that every member of a church is actually born again, and the loss of church discipline, then we've ended up in a situation today where a vast majority of established churches in the South are quickly dying. Because their pews and maybe even their pulpits are filled with those who are spiritually immature at best, maybe not even born again if we think for one second that we've escaped that danger just because we're a new church, take heed lest we fall. We can never assume our salvation but must also examine ourselves, must live a life of continual repentance and faith in Jesus. That God's grace is abundant and strong it can save and pres- preserve the salvation of even these Corinthians and even us but us like they would do well to place our lives before the mirror of God's word and be exposed by the word of God and the spirit of God and have every single corner and area of our lives turned upside down, inside out, like a spiritual spring cleaning. Is there any area of my life that is inconsistent with how I'm claiming to be? I'm professing to be this follower of Jesus. Is there any area of my life that that's not being experienced and is visible and known? Like we, we do this thing every year uh, as, as leaders, we, assess each other it's not very much fun here's your strengths here's your weaknesses here's your uh, threats here's the hard things you're having to walk through here's how we see good things happening in your life like we should have that attitude toward each other we can come before our brothers and sisters in Christ and just lay ourselves open and say what what do you see what can you celebrate what do I need help with it's not just needed by every single member of a local church, but also pastors, like we just celebrated the life of Billy Graham, this lifelong ministry with not a single scandal of immorality or financial impropriety or abuse of power. And it feels like every week another pastor or ministry leader is showing up in our Twitter feed, disqualifying themselves, failing and falling. Just a few days ago, one of the most prominent pastors in churches of the last 30 years. He's got all these accusations against him. When it gets to that point, it doesn't usually work out. come out good. Like, it's usually done. Scott Sauls is writing about this. He's a pastor in Nashville. He formerly worked with Tim Keller in, in Redeemer in Pres- uh, New York. He writes this week that five of his friends in ministry have failed in the last year. He says this, Studies show that pastors experience anxiety and depression at a rate that is disproportionately high compared to the rest of the population. Due to the unique pressures associated with spiritual warfare, unrealistic expectations from the congregation and oneself, the freedom many feel to criticize and gossip about pastors with zero accountability, especially in the digital age, failure to take time off for rest and replenishment, marriage and family tensions due to the demands of ministry, financial strains, and self-comparison, pastors are prime candidates for relational isolation, emotional turmoil, and moral collapse. And we're the guys that are supposed to lead you. Yay, sign me up. Now, Some of that is the nature of the beast, byproducts of what's needed or expected in this role. Some of it is self-inflicted, but the brokenness grows in darkness and solitude with men assuming the gospel and not being examined by the gospel. We have an extensive process that we use to evaluate guys who want to be elders at the crossing. It takes a long time and, and thoroughly examines every part of their life trying to ensure that we are known and to some degree healthy enough to take this on. And we're developing pastoral care plans to help every guy stay healthy and above reproach and vibrant throughout the time that they help lead the Crossing Church. So so that for all of us, our walks are vibrant. Our marriages are vibrant. Our parenting is vibrant. We are as healthy as possible spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally maturing spiritually because the gospel is flavoring every aspect of our lives. So that is obvious and apparent that the person and presence of Jesus is living inside of us and following Jesus and being transformed by Jesus as part of the crossing is enjoying Jesus and not something that can be experienced apart from Jesus. And what should be true of our pastor should be true of every single member of the crossing church. That's how we should all live. It's not like there's a super spiritual class of people that only have to do all that. We all should live like that. Pursuing all of us being this kind of people. This is part of what helps keep our focus on Jesus and not men. We all need him. Men won't do, which is essential to fight against disunity and factionalism, as we see, picking up in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos' water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. You're divided as a church, Paul is saying. is seems primarily around these two guys. And Paul's choice to name only himself and Apollos here might give us some clue as to the primary cause of division. Paul goes in, plants the church, spreads the gospel, and he does it intentionally in a way that fights against the Corinthian culture that makes much of the speaker and his speaking eloquence and his ability to impress people. Paul says, I intentionally didn't do that so you would have faith in God, not men. And then in comes Apollos, who is known, according to Acts 18, as having this incredible speaking ability. It's like the people of Corinth, who had still more of the city of Corinth inside of them than Jesus at times, were evaluating Apollos and saying, hey, he does this a lot better than Paul does. So I'm with him. And then the Paul faction says, whoa, 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 Paul got this thing started. We're with him. And they're both missing the point. Making much of men and not the God who saved them. So here Paul attempts to crush this disunity by pointing out that this is a result of misplaced loyalty. Why are you showing so much loyalty and adoration to these men? Who are they compared to God? They're just servants. Like the Greek word there is diakonos. We get our, our word deacon, literally servant. Or in the analogy, it's really more like a farmhand, a day laborer. When I pastor in, in rural communities, I would, I would often work with the guys, maybe on their farm, church facilities, short-term mission trips, um, around their house, just all kinds of things you get, you get to do. And, um, and I would just tell them, like, look, I'm just a hand. Don't, don't look to me to tell you what to do, how to fix this. You just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. But I would use that terminology, and it was understood on the farm. I'm just a hand. I'm here to help out. You couldn't even YouTube stuff back then. It was crazy. (laughs) Paul says it doesn't matter who plants or who waters. Verse 7, they are nothing. It's God who gives the growth. It's God who is something. It's God who energizes life. Like the farming analogy probably meant more to them in the first century than us today, who maybe sometimes think that food just grows on the shelves of the grocery store. But everyone understood in the agricultural society where things come from. And even the Jewish mindset, they saw God as eminently tied to the the creation of life and food and grain and, and so forth. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. He, God, causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. Like we have this role as Christian leaders and pastors, but our role is limited because what really needs to happen in us is something only God can do. We can't do this. It's, it's often a prayer of mine when, when I'm preparing to preach or, or putting together a sermon. Like, this sermon's not going to fix anybody, God. Only you can fix what needs to be fixed in us. It's just a bunch of words. Paul is taking this hyperbole to the extreme, maybe, in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Really, Paul? Nothing? I mean, come on. Give us Give us something. But we know this is hyperbole because of the rest of the passage in the rest of the New Testament. We're, we're about to see that while we're nothing as laborers, our labors will be evaluated and assessed so much so that we can be rewarded for these labors if we're laying up treasures in heaven. So we're doing something enough to be assessed. And we know in the rest of the New Testament, it's a noble thing to aspire to be a pastor or elder. And we give honor where honor is due. Even later in chapter 4, Paul will talk about his role to this church as a spiritual father whom they have imitated. So so don't get lost in Paul's analogy and hyperbole that Christian leaders are, are really nothing. The point is, as compared to God, we are nothing. The problem in this church, which was leading to factionalism, is they were making too much of their leaders. In some churches who beat their pastors down, who keep their pastors humble, who don't respect or honor their pastors, don't love their pastors, an opposite message would be needed. Maybe 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But that wasn't the problem in Corinth. They were making too much of these guys and putting their loyalty and adoration that should be reserved for God on these men and allowing them to divide as a church. And so Paul says, who are these guys? Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? They're just day laborers. They didn't die for you. They weren't crucified for you. They're nothing compared to God. Like this church needed to know what one author wrote about this analogy. The point of Paul's analogy is that the progress of the gospel is the work of God. When it comes to church growth, whereas ministers, denominations, and institutions are contingent, only God has absolute significance. To accord Christian leaders too high a stature is to ignore their impotence without the power of the life-giving Spirit. Completely powerless, apart from the God working in us. We are completely, totally dependent on the Spirit of God to produce any good and lasting work of God that we need to happen in us, in our city, and in the nations. If we're taking any steps as a church toward trying to do any work that is simply the effort and energy and plans of man, may God turn us around or shut us down. We don't need another one of those. We have enough of those. What our city needs is God's power, God's wisdom through the gospel, not our wisdom and power. And if all we're going to experience and try to share is our power and wisdom, we need to shut this thing down now because we're not a church. We're just a hangout club or something. Only God brings the growth. We're just field hands doing the task that the Lord has assigned to us. Notice the sovereignty of God even over that. Like several years ago, a group of guys went out to plant a church. And a mutual friend of of ours told me, you know, of course that church is going to be successful. Those guys are superstars. May that never be said of us. Not only because we're not superstars, but because we want to see the power of God working in us, not our abilities, our wisdom, and our power. If anything good happens, we don't want the glory reserved for the one alone who gives the grace and provides the growth. The question for us could be, are we giving our leaders too much loyalty, more than God? And we try to do certain things like shared leadership and other things to not build the crossing around a particular personality. There's so many things we do. We, we maybe we should make a list one day because there's a lot, even the lighting in here like we don't we don't have everything dark in a spotlight because we're not in the spotlight. God's in the spotlight when we sing and when we preach. It's always something we're going to have to fight against, even though we're doing a lot of things to try to fight against it now. And, and you need to be you need to know that that anything good that we're a part of happening in your life is solely the result of God and His grace. Um. Like we know ourselves, we know how broken we are and how dependent on Jesus and His gospel we are. I'm continually amazed that I get to do this. Continually grateful that we, I, us, haven't made shipwreck of our, our marriage, our family, our, our ministry. Because we're prone to fall into the same sins that you read in the headlines, all, as all these other guys have fallen into. None of us are above it. We need Jesus desperately as your pastors. Andy Crouch, writing for the Gospel Coalition this week, in response to these high-profile ministry leaders falling and failing, he, writing a, he wrote a strong word for us to fight against this Christian culture of power and celebrity that is intentionally or unintentionally creating space and systems which give opportunity for these secret sins to grow. He says this about himself. He, he also being a respected nationally known Christian leader, "'If you knew the full condition of my heart, my fantasies and grievances, my anxieties and my darkest solitary thoughts, you would declare me a danger to myself and others.'" I cannot be entrusted with power by myself, certainly not with celebrity, and neither can you. And that is true of every guy who stands and proclaims the gospel in this church, every guy who leads us in musical worship in the church, every woman who would have any responsibilities in our church. We are all in desperate need of Jesus and his gospel every single day. And we hope and pray we are so set up that you see that, you know that, and you see us running to Jesus. If we're not, please, please hold us accountable because you love us. We need the body to love us and not let us destroy ourselves, our families, and our ministries. So don't don't put us on the pedestal. Put Jesus on the pedestal. Don't be loyal to us above Jesus. If that's an issue for you today, then heed that. But the application could, could also ask Who are what grabs more of our loyalty and affection other than God that we're most prone to make much of over and above God, who is the one who is ultimately responsible for the good work he does in us? Like, it might be yourself. Like, you put yourself on a pedestal. Like, I do these spiritual things. I make my spiritual life and growth happen in me. I'm responsible for my own spiritual life and growth. So in order to experience spiritual growth and health, I have to do spiritual things. Read my Bible, pray, attend worship gatherings, give, and serve. And some of you are thinking, isn't that true? But if you're doing those things thinking you are producing the growth in you and it's not flowing from God and what he's already done through his son Jesus, then you're simply going to be a religious person. Full of outward activity but dead on the inside and spiritually immature at best. Like From our first breath, we are receiving from Him. We wake up, we open our eyes, and we are alive. And we've done nothing to keep ourselves alive all night. He's preserved our physical life. We wake up and we believe in Jesus. We've done nothing all night long to preserve our faith in Jesus. To wake up in our right mind. To wake up with physical and spiritual capabilities. So the first breath and physical awareness of waking up in the morning, we've already received God's grace. Just from the night before. Before we ever take our head off the pillow, and then everything else we do the rest of the day is in response to the grace He's already given us through His Son, Jesus. Physically, spiritually, relationally, emotionally. By God's grace, if we keep that order set and all that we do, God will use that to grow us and use us to help others grow. But if we get that backwards, now it's just your wisdom and power apart from gospel motivation, then you'll just be piling up religious outward appearance. The first question we ask ourselves every morning is not, God, what can I do for you today? The first question we ask ourselves, God, what have you already done for me? That's where we start. And then out of the gospel, as we focus on that, as we meditate, rest, enjoy, savor, how sweet that is, how good that is, now we go and live out this life He's called us to live. Let's get in the fields and labor. And all of us are on equal ground as fellow workers, serving the one true God. So let's not make too much of the leaders God gives us if we're prone to do that. The reality is they, us, we are ultimately evaluated and held accountable for God, by God. So we need to labor well because if we don't, that also leads to disunity and divisions. Picking up at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Another part of the problem in the Corinthian culture that was making its way into the church and causing disunity was was this evaluation by the people of their leaders, They're evaluating Paul and Apollos, saying, I like him better than him. He's got my loyalty, not that guy. Paul will deal with this more in chapter 4. But here Paul rightly points out that ultimately the one who evaluates and holds Christian leaders and Christians accountable for our work is God. Our evaluations are often premature and incomplete. We don't know everything, and we judge too soon the work that someone else does. And we can make very bold and certain pronouncements about someone and their work instead of trusting God to hold them accountable. Again, so see the balance of Scripture. This doesn't mean when sin and false doctrine is evident, we can't call it out and address it. We should. But ultimately, the work of the Christian will be evaluated by God, and that adds this somber weight to what we do. But we can also rest in that. So so this is a clear eschatological passage. Eschatology is just a, a fancy word. This speaks of the study of last things, eschaton, last things in the Greek. And Paul is speaking of a day yet to come. Verse 13: for the day will disclose it. In the last days, all things hidden will be revealed. There will be nothing uncertain or unknown or hidden on that day. It will be clear to everyone the realities that we believe in and are experiencing through Jesus Christ. The final accounting will be done. Jesus will return, and there will be no more mystery. Right now, we're living in the last days, have been since the last day, uh, in the last days since Jesus' incarnate ministry. We're in this period where the kingdom of God has already come, but it's not yet fully consummated. It's not yet fully experienced by all people in all the world. That day's coming. We're in what's called theologians the already not yet time of the kingdom of God. Already here, but not yet fully consummated. So while we see the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom growing, to many in our world, it's inconsequential even dangerous and evil. For now, those with the eyes of faith see Jesus as king of the universe, and by his grace, we willingly bow and submit before him and lay down our lives for him. When that day comes and Jesus returns, all will bow, everybody. The question is not, will everyone bow before Jesus? The question is, will you bow now, willingly out of love that you receive by his grace, or will you bow then as part of your judgment? Now notice this judgment is not a judgment of people, but of works. So this is not the final judgment of all humanity where the result is heaven or hell, as you see in places like Revelation 20 and Matthew 25. This is a judgment of the works of Christians. The judgment of our eternal state has already happened in Christ. So our salvation is not being evaluated because it's rooted in the person and work of Christ. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will get, you you have it. If you believe in him, in the word that that he's proclaimed, he does not come into judgment, but notice the tense, has passed from death to life. So we've already experienced eternal life as soon as Jesus comes alive inside of you. You've already been judged, not you, but Jesus judged for you. He experienced wrath for us before our Father in heaven. So we've already experienced this life. We already have this life. We have no, we have, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you have no fear of judgment day. That's already been decided through Jesus. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody's taking that away. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll never be condemned by your Father in heaven. So salvation is not at stake in 1 Corinthians 3. That was decided once and for all when we were justified and born again in Christ. This is a judgment of our works. This is also mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14.10-12, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Are you? you, Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is a judgment of reward or no reward. It clearly shows either we're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ with works that will last or we're building on the foundation with works that will not last. Now, we will not really know until that day when it's tested by fire and it will either be purified or burned up and we'll receive a reward or we won't receive a reward. So, so what are these works and what is this reward? Like, is this where I get to pick out my mansion in heaven or how many bedrooms I want or which neighborhood I want to live in because I want to live around those people but not those people, right? Or my job for eternity. Is this where I get to do those sorts of things? And what constitutes a work that will last and a work that will be burned up? From the context of what Paul has written so far in this passage, it seems like building on the foundation he has laid, the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, would mean we are doing works empowered by, motivated by the power and wisdom of God, in line with the gospel and not for selfish gain or adulation or to impress others, but to point people to God so they may place their faith in God and not man. That's everything we've looked at so far in 1 Corinthians. You see, Jesus and his gospel are not just the entry point into the kingdom of God, and then we move on to other things. He is and the gospel is the foundation and the building materials for the rest of the building. Jesus and the gospel are not just the entry point, but they are the essence of the foundation and building that God is building called the church. It's making Jesus and his gospel the main thing in all that we do, calling people not to make much of us but of him, calling people to see and savor and be captivated by Jesus more than they're captivated by us. See, ultimately, there's some mystery in this because ultimately we won't know until that day if we've really done a work that will last or work that won't last. But, like Paul, we can to some degree, when we're so focused on Christ, what we can say, like Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I've laid a good foundation. The idea of reward does not seem to be something materialistic, but the joy and satisfaction and honor that we receive from doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. To hear Him evaluate our work, as He does in the the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. The, the master gave the, the, the servants four, uh, four talents, and, and, or two talents rather, and four talents and five talents. And, and one went out and buried it and was afraid to show up to his master with no work to show that he's done. But the other two went out and they multiplied it, doubled it. And he told them, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. There's reward for you. Uh, this is pretty somber. Just to imagine this. Even though we're not being judged for salvation, our eternal soul and destiny is not at stake but just to think about standing before the Lord and being held accountable for the works that we've done and having them evaluated by God. Like, who enjoys evaluation? Who's like, yippee, I get to have my boss evaluate my job performance? We as Americans even hate it more than than anyone else, it seems, you know, because we're, we're our own authority. So we don't want anyone evaluating our work or saying we've done good or we haven't done good. Who are we to judge, right? We should avoid hypocritical judging in the church, but this is not us doing the evaluation, but God. And there is no court of appeals. There is no secondary arbitrator to whom you can go and say, hey, can we get a second look at this? You can't call someone else in to audit your records and give a second opinion. This is not only the final assessment. It is the complete assessment. And if you are feeling the somberness and the weight of that That is a good thing. That's a very good thing. If you're just flipping, I don't care. I'm good. It's a dangerous place to be. This is actually going to help us grow in unity if we feel the weight of this, the somberness of this, because we will quit evaluating each other. We'll be more concerned about what the Lord says about our work and we'll look at our brother and sister in Christ and instead of trying to outdo them we'll be like, "Let me help you because you've got to stand before him as well and give an account and we'll all together be running to him for help to do this well so that we can hear well done thy good and faithful servant and be rewarded for the works that he's done in us and through us and we're going to be helping each other not trying to evaluate ourselves above each other now this should Cause us to pause and feel the weight of this day of evaluation. But understand, we don't have to be afraid. We should have fear, like reverential awe, but not phobia. And this is a good thing. That kind of fear, phobia, does not belong in the heart of a child of their Father in heaven. You and I belong in His presence by His grace through the death and sacrifice of His Son. We belong in his presence as his child because of the person and work of Jesus. And we don't have to fear this evaluation any more than my kids have to fear my evaluation of them. There's nothing that they're ever going to do that's going to make me look at them and say, you're no longer my daughter. You're no longer my son. And, and I, I, they know that. I hope they know that. Tell, tell them all the time, right? And through Jesus, our Father in heaven feels the same way to a much greater extent about us. In one sense, we are holy and blameless, dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. That is always true of us because our standing before God is rooted in Jesus. That's an identity we get through Jesus that can never change because it's his performance that brought it about. But our works, not us, our works will be evaluated for reward or no reward. But, but God, see even his grace in that. It is God who gives the growth. We are God's fellow workers. We are God's field. We are God's building. By His grace, Paul says in verse 10, we're able to do all that He's enabled us to do. All the works we have done are evaluated, and anything that we've done that is lasting has been done by God's grace. And if we've done a bunch of works that are evaluated and are burned up in the fire, we will still enter into glory just with the smell of smoke on our garments. The point of this isn't to show like some kind of slacker way to live the Christian life. Like this is not the 1.5 GPA path to graduation. Oh good, I quit trying so hard. Just kind of coast from here on out. My goodness, check back down to one Sunday a month. Now the point is to highlight His grace, His power, His wisdom, which crushes our pride. Because even if we pile up a huge pile of costly stones that make it through the fire, it was by his grace. So while we get reward, he gets glory. And even if we don't, or whatever we've done that won't make it through the fire, we will still be saved, because we are his. If you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so believe in Jesus. Live out the reality of Jesus in your life. Be used by Jesus to lay up treasure in heaven for the glory of Jesus. And let's do this together as one body with one focus and one desire to make much of him. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy that saves us, sanctifies us preserves us, enables everything good that we can do. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's not come alive in Christ, or not believing in Jesus for this salvation that you've provided, I pray that today you would give them life as they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus that that they would be born again, that today would be the day of their salvation. and give them the boldness to even let it be known to someone that they came with or someone they're sitting near or one of us as pastors so that we can celebrate with them and help them follow Jesus. I pray for, for all of us in what ways we need this truth to, to, to drill deeper into our hearts and minds. Just do that for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.